New Year's Eve, 1975. 20 minutes to midnight. I'm going to ask her to get midnight. I'm 19, she's 17. We're in the middle of a cabaret in downtown Edmonton. Full of smoke, that place. Those days, you could smoke everywhere. And uh, 20 minutes to midnight, I get hammered with an opportunity to do a big drug deal. Or keep in mind to buy a ring for Diane. And I think the first time in my life, I got a brain in my head. And I refused to do the deal with my friend. And at midnight 1975, I asked Diane to marry me. And she said yes. Um, yeah, thank you so much to everybody for this opportunity. Um, the other day, Diane and I were traveling here, and we came through Saskatoon, and then we're going to Regina. And uh, we got to the city kind of late, and our kids were kind of busy, so we went to the new restaurant called Wendell Clark's. And it's kind of a neat place, some very reasonable prices, great food and everything. And, and anyway, we get in there, we have a great supper, we got to minister to two young uh, waitresses. It was just phenomenal. And anyway, we went out, and we were pretty excited about everything. And we get in our, my wife's car there, and uh, it's a nice little uh, Chrysler Pacifica. I uh, get in it, and I put it in here, and I head ahead, and we hit this bump, and over a concrete stop, and bang, down on that thing, and I'm stuck. So then I tried to back up, and I tried everything, and I'm wrecking it. And then the stop, stop, we have CAA. No, no way. I'm a man, I can do this, we can get off this. <laughs> so I tried more and more, and it was really not sounding good, crunch, crunch, and bang, and everything else, and when the tow truck showed up, and lifted me off that concrete slab. He said, if it makes you feel better, it happens all the time. <laughs> so that did make me feel a little better, but boy, I thought it might need to do some damage. And, uh, but you know what? One thing I found out is God does everything for a reason. There's a purpose. And I thought that was the most ridiculous thing, and I was disgusted, and I thought, how stupid could I be? Why would this happen to me? You know, I should have looked or something like that. But I got home, got to our daughter and son-in-law's house, and my son-in-law, our son opened the garage door, and I pulled in. I just wanted to check things over. And I'm checking things over, and everything looked all right, and it was good. But I don't know, I just felt I should check my wheel lugs, you know, so I checked them on that front wheel, they were good. And I went to try to check, and the ones on the rear driver's side were loose. Had that not happened, I would never have checked those lugs. So I don't know what would have happened. But I know more and more as I grow older and older, God has a purpose for everything, and I shouldn't be so disgusted when something happens that maybe God's got a reason for it. 35 years ago, at an evening very similar to this, a whole house, very strong spiritual men, took me to an event like this. I was a brand new Christian, and I'll tell you, it was the craziest thing I ever been to. You know, and I walked out of there an absolutely different man. And, uh, Growing up in small town Saskatchewan has its uh, good stuff and its bad stuff. In uh, my little hometown, we grew up and we had our own motorcycle gang and everything, tours through, and uh, it was kind of cool. I always wanted to be a biker. I've been riding a motorcycle since I was 12 years old. But growing up, it all started out when my mom came from Germany in 1955. She came from Germany with a little boy from a previous marriage. She was brought to Canada to work on a farm as a nanny and a housekeeper. Instead, she was taken out to a dilapidated old farm where a 36-year-old alcoholic lived and left there. Within a week or so, he raped her, and that's when my life started. 
The marriage never, ever worked. There was fighting and battling. My dad's drinking. My mom uh, grew up in the Second World War and saw her uncle and family members killed in that war. It was horrible, and she was schizophrenic, and it was just a struggle. And uh, at four years old, I saw my dad beat her until uh, he held her by the throat. And uh, anyway, I watched him hit her and hit her, and I, I'm hiding her in a couch room. My mom put myself and my two little sisters, and, and she's screaming. And that's how I learned how a man treats a wife and how a husband is a husband and a father. And that's kind of the home we lived in. And this time around, when I was four years old also, I was uh, hospitalized for almost a half a year. Both my kidneys had quit. Somehow I got a disease called Bright's disease, and uh, and, uh, and they said one more day and not getting there. I wouldn't have made it. So, you know, I look back and think, oh, God must have had a hand in my life in some way. Um, in our home, you could have seen and every every kind of abuse you can imagine was experienced and seen in that home. It was not a great place to live. Um, growing up and uh, going to school, I didn't do real well in school. Um, by the time I got to grade 10, I knew I had to get through grade 10. Because in order to get a trade, you had to have grade 10 back then. Uh, and on my second try of grade 10, it was going even worse because uh, I was sitting behind Diane in school. And I was not learning a whole lot, I'll tell you. Yeah, I just could not focus at all. And uh, anyway, my marks were far worse than they were the first try. And uh, so after a couple months, the principal called me in the office and, and he said, Harold, this isn't working. And he said, we got to do something about it. And I've got to, something for you to decide on. You make the choice to take it or leave it. But... He said, today, if you'll pack your bags, leave this school, promise me you'll never come back, I'll give you a great pen. That's hard, he said. <laughs> I was a vapor trail. Honestly, I had a 67 Mustang fastback sitting in the parking lot, and I was glad to get out there and get going. And uh, we loaded up next day with beer and whiskey and our stuff, and headed to Prince George and worked the song most. But uh, yeah, no kidding. And uh, it was just, I could not believe my ears. I was pretty excited about that. But when people always, I hear people in the background say, you know, crying don't pay. Well, maybe a little bit. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But I just, uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, um, but if I go back to when I was 12 years old, social services came to our house and took my mom out of our home. She was so badly beaten from my dad's alcoholism and everything that. She couldn't talk and function anymore. So social services came and took her, and she never did return after that. And our home was a, a dilapidated old home. And uh, by the time, uh, it was kind of a party place and everything else. My dad wasn't around much. He was either working or in the bar. But by the time I was 14 years old, things had really gotten out of control. By that time, we were well into the drugs. We were doing a lot of stuff that we shouldn't have been doing, you know, acid, NDA, and hash oil, and hash, everything was just everywhere. I was uh, 14 years old when I went into a place and bought my first bag of marijuana, and, you know, sneaking home and everything else, and the whole thing was just so, so bizarre, I think of it now. And, um, but when I was 14 years old, something really crazy happened. I'm getting out of school, at the end of school that year, it was the summer of 69, that's a pretty good song. And, uh, you know, Everybody could probably sing it right now. But the summer of 69, June, done school, thinking, here we go, great summer ahead of us. And this guy walks in my backyard. And he comes to the door and he wants to talk to me. So I come out the door and I uh, 
It's, it's Jim, big Jim Hingston. He's a plumber in town. And we all kind of, everybody needed him, but we didn't really like him much. Him and his family were the only born-again Christians in our community. We made fun of those kids. We did everything we could to really go mock those kids, especially when we knew they had this, they had this uh, thing they did every week called a Bible study, and so we knew they were really, really off the wall. And so it was tough. And so anyway, he asked if I wanted a job for the summer, and I wanted the job. He offered me good money and everything, but I didn't want to be seen with Jim. You know, I was one of the worst at the mocking him and his family, and here he's asking me for a job. You know, like it was just kind of the whole thing, the whole scenario was really strange. But I did take the job. And I kid you not, I learned more that summer from that man of God than anybody I think I ever did. He taught me about integrity. He taught me to work hard. He taught me to do a good job. One time I was watching, so I had a jackhammer up some cement to get some pipe exposed so he could change the pipe. I got it all done. I had it cleaned up and ready to go when he got back. And I was sitting outside of the school on the sidewalk by the door, just waiting for him. I was ready to show off what I did. I did exactly what he told me to do. And I did it fast. He got there and he looked at it. It's great, Harold, but he said, I'll tell you what, nobody likes to pay a tradesman to be sitting on their butt on the sidewalk. What the heck? He said, if you're done your work, find a hammer, a shovel, or anything, but do something. Don't sit around and let people, don't show it, just don't sit around. He taught me to carry a notepad with me. I got my notepad with me because I need new tires on my truck and trailer real bad. But Jim taught me to carry a notepad. He said, write things down. Don't ask stupid questions in front of customers. And you got questions, you're not sure of something? Write it down, he said. And at coffee time, we'll talk about it. We were just saying earlier how <clears throat> we've been involved in Biker World for a long time. And, and uh, Wally's over there, I've known Wally for a long time. And, you know, something in the biker world is that, you know, men are men, and women are women. We take care of our women, and we have a lot of fun, and we're a big family. And it doesn't matter with the Christian bikers or with any of the clubs or groups. We all, there's a, you know, everybody sort of looks after each other. It's, it's, a, it's a great place to be. We don't have a lot of problems out there. It's a lot of fun anymore. And it is. It's a great, uh, it's a great place to be. But um, anyway, um, where the heck was I? No, 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 no. Oh, yeah, no pad, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, I learned a lot from Jim that summer. And, anyway, uh, then years went by and, uh, and I got my driver's license the day of my birthday. I was in getting my driver's license. The driver's license those days were important. Today, it is not important to anybody, it seems. They don't care if they get drunk. I was in there July 17th. Uh, and I was there at 10 in the morning. I don't think I was even born until 8 that night. I was there even <laughs> 6 hours before I was even born. I wasn't even 16 yet. And I walked in there and the guy looked and he looks, wow, you want a birthday present today, don't you? I said, I sure do. And I went home and uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. Arm hanging out the window there. What's this side here? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it was good. But. Um, we grew up, and Diane and I lived across the street from each other. She picked up my sisters for school every day. And so she was like a sister, but my sisters always squealed on me, and Diane just wanted to be part of what I was doing. So that was a good part of it. Anyway, um, we knew each other all our lives, and, uh, and then I asked Diane to marry me, and uh, we got, got home from that, and within a week, the police raided our home, and, and I was busted for drug trafficking that day. Um, 
about two weeks later, I go to court and I'm in front of a judge. And that judge looks at me and he says, you know, young man, uh, they wrote all the charges. He says, uh, you know, young man, you got a clean record up till today and I have a choice today to give you a record for the rest of your life. But he said, if you promise me to keep your nose clean, I don't know why I'm doing this, he said, but if you promise to keep your nose clean, get away from that stuff, I'll give you a second chance. I said, hey, no problem, I ain't going near that stuff again. I said, I'm done with that. And he gave me a, a second chance, but by midnight that night, I was so loaded and drunk and thinking, boy, what an idiot that guy was. You know, that's just the stupidity of my head at that time and, and, the, and the culture that I was growing up in. The summer of that year, July 1976, Diane and I got married and started our lives together. Diane graduated from high school. I was working underground in the potash mine. Uh, we, had, uh, we had sold our, our uh, Firebird. We had a Firebird then we sold it to get married and had a little Chevy truck and a car, uh, trailer and a, a, a chopper motorcycle and we headed for Calgary. We stopped in Kindersley, and uh, that's where we ended up for 21 years. But our lives started to spiral downhill. Oh, yeah, I want to go back a little bit to fishing. Fishing and golfing are exactly the same drawer for me. I never fished, and I've never golfed. I don't know. I love to fish, and I love to golf, but the two of them, like, listening to talk about, wow, have I missed out? Do you own a Harley Davidson? No. I thought so. I see the shirt there, and I thought, man, what? But uh, anyway, um, in 19, as we, after we got married, our lives started to spiral. And, and you know, I was introduced to even better drugs. And when I was introduced to cocaine, that was the drug. That thing, that stuff is absolutely unbelievable. I had a problem with beer that I was allergic to it. When I would drink beer, which I love beer, I would get stuffed up and plugged up because I was allergic to it and that would spoil my whole night. But if I snort a couple lines of cocaine, boy, my sinuses were clear as could be and I could drink all the beer I wanted to. How crazy is that? You know, but that's just the life we live in. And you know, you didn't know any different. You know, that's just what it was. And um, motorcycles and drugs. And nothing like you lived in the fishing lane. <laughs> I listened to that and I thought, Holy mackerel, what a life. But I would have been one of the kids they'd have sent to your place. <laughs> Only the first bunch. Um, as our marriage was starting to struggle and everything else, and uh, we were running a plumbing business and we had a lot of men working for us, and we were doing a big shopping center in uh, Kindersley. And this company was doing the shopping center, we're doing one in Cologne also, and they weren't paying us. They're paying the guys in Kelowna and building a super mall. They didn't pay anybody in Kindersley. The concrete guys, the paving guys, the steel guys, everybody. They didn't pay any of us. And there was probably close to a dozen companies that went bankrupt because of that job. And Diane and I were really young, 26 and 24, and we didn't have a clue about all this stuff. We had no kind of backing, and they owed us a lot of money, like $200,000, and um, they weren't paying. And we were struggling, and I was... I didn't know what to do. I couldn't pay my bills. I, uh, I needed a lot of money to have payroll. This was a Monday morning. And uh, this one day, I got everybody going on a Monday, and then I went to my office, and I thought, what am I going to do? I just don't have a clue. Uh, I felt like a failure. In our home, my dad tried to commit suicide six times in front of us. Diane got to witness it sometimes. She would help my sisters and us try to find my dad. When we couldn't find him, we knew what he was up to. And if we ever lost him, we knew that we'd be split up and that our home would be worse than it was. 
My mom tried to commit suicide a couple times at home. I remember my sister, my older sister and I, she would lay on that side of bed, I'd on this side, and my mom didn't know we were there. She thought nobody was there. The minute that she thought everybody was gone, she'd grab for the pills and try to take the pills. And that's just how, you know, isn't that a crazy life, eh? 13, 14, 15 years old living that way. But that's how, that just was normal for us then. And uh, so anyway, I'm sitting there and I don't know how I'm going to make all my commitments and I feel like a total failure. <clears throat> but something that started to tweak was all these people who said, and it goes right back to the Gideons in our classroom in grade five, nobody seems to care to give God a chance. And at this day, I was probably at the worst place I could ever be in. And I felt like the most biggest failure. And after a bit, I just sat there and I put my head down and I said, you know, God, if you're real, I need you and I need you now. And that was it. And honestly, I never knew a head could hold that much snot. It just started to flow on me. Honestly, I was a mess. It was just flowing and I was just shaking. It, I, was, I was a mess. And then all of a sudden, somebody knocked at the door of my office. And I thought, oh, crap, you know. I had a Harley Davidson sitting up front. All my men working and everything else. And now somebody's at the door. So I wipe my eyes and blow my nose best I can. And, and I say, come on in. And there's a guy standing at the door, about 45 years old. And he had a strong European accent. And I said, yeah, can I help you? He said, yeah, I wonder if you're hiring anybody. I said, no. He said, I'm not hiring anybody. Well, he says, you know, he said, if you can give me a job, he says, I can help you with some money if you need some money. I said, pardon me? And he said it again. I said, have a seat. <laughs> and he sank down across my desk. And you know, I totally was not connecting anything here. I forgot that I prayed 10, 15 minutes before and everything I cried out to God. And I just listened to this. He said he owned property in Alberta and uh, he had some investments and he had some money, but he said, if I don't have a job, they can send me back to my own country. And then he said something that I didn't realize was most profound ever till the last few years. He said, you give me a job, I don't care what you pay me, but I'll do more for you than any man can ever do. Wow. So I got up and we walked out of my office and went over by Ethel, our secretary, and I showed him around our showroom and then into the parts area where Daryl and Charlotte were working in our inventory and our stock and stuff. And then out to the back of our sheet metal shop and our sheet metal guys are there. And, and we went out back and where our equipment and stuff was all. And, and I was talking about the mall and how we were struggling with all this stuff and everything. And then we walked right by the same people, right by Ethel at the front office and out the front door. And he was driving this old Plymouth car. And I, I won't ever forget it because it was a kind of a gold-colored thing with an orange front fender on it. And just a piece of junk. And uh, anyway, he, uh, <clears throat> he goes to get in his car. And I said, he says, you know, he says, I can't start work till next Monday. Would that be all right? And I said, well, I said, I guess that's okay. But I said, you know what? I could sure use some help with some money by Friday. It's payroll. And he grabbed my hand. And he looked me right in the eye. And he says, I promise you this, if you need the money, it'll be there. And he shook my hand and got in that car and left. Well, that week, for the first time in months, enough money came into our account that we haven't seen in a while because when you're going into a bankruptcy situation, everybody wants to get on that bandwagon and have a free ride. And so by the end of that week, enough people paid us that we were able to make all our commitments and payroll for the first time in months. 
And so anyway, it was kind of cool. Monday come along and I kind of looking for the guy and he didn't show up. And so I didn't think too much of that because in our shop, most of them were drugs and just a mess, a bunch of people. And you never expected half of your people to be there Monday morning. So I didn't think much of that. And then Tuesday came along and he still didn't show up. So then I went over to Ethel and I said, Ethel, I said, the guy that was here last week to come to work for us. I said, did he be on phone or leave a message with you or anything? And Ethel says to me, Yo, I didn't see anybody here like that last week. But Ethel, we're right here in front of you. We went back and forth to the shop with everything. I said, a lot of stuff. She says, I didn't see anybody here like that last week. And so I go to Daryl and Charlotte and I said to them the same thing. I said, you guys, the guy that was with me last week, remember when we squeezed by here and I was showing around the shop and everything? I said, did he phone and leave a message with you guys? And they looked at me and they said, Daryl, we didn't see anybody like that last week. And so I, I kind of was really freaked out about them. And I went back to my office and I sat in there. I, you know, honestly, I didn't have a clue. I didn't know nothing about spiritual things at all. I just sat there and I tried to figure it out. <clears throat> and it didn't make any sense to me at all until years later when I found out that God sends ministering angels to prepare those for salvation. And I'll never deny it. I know that God put an angel in my office that day to get me through that time where I wasn't strong enough to do it in my life. But when we cry out, when we cry out to God, I guarantee you, if you cry out from the bottom of your heart and he knows your pain, he's going to be there. And that's the honest truth for any of you that would ever question that. And so it was about a month later, I'm in my office and, uh, and we're losing everything. Diane and I, we have two kids, and, and we're just losing it all. We knew the bank was going to be there the next day and to close the doors of the shop and everything. And, and uh, I'm sitting in my office, and this guy walks in, and this is a guy named Doug. And Doug has been bugging me, and he's a farmer, and he's been bugging me about Jesus for probably two years straight. And I had to let him bug me about Jesus because he's building a new house, a beautiful big new house, and we're doing the plumbing. <laughs> so how do you get paid? You have to humor people a bit. And oh man, he would be on me all the time about Jesus this and Jesus. I would throw him out of our shop. I'd tell the filthiest jokes in front of everything. But you know what? He was like you guys. He never gave up. He never gave up on me for a second. And that night about 7.30, he walks into my office. Who told him that I was there? How did he know I was in my office at that time of day? And he walks in and he sits and he starts listening and listening and sharing. And then he says, Harold, it's time for you to surrender. And give it to Jesus. And I was a mess. My liver was shot. I couldn't get life insurance any anymore. I was an absolute mess. And uh, um, my priorities were right out of whack. I just uh, everything was just done. And August 3rd, 1983, I, I surrendered my life to Jesus. And you know what? Diane came to the Lord at the same time, and, and we've never looked back. We have never looked back. God has, uh, we've been through some tough times in our lives, but. Uh, we have never, ever looked back. Um, before that, I lived in a, in a horrible pit. And I just want to share what I wrote one time. I had to share for uh, the Drug and Alcohol Detox Center. I, shared, I wrote this out. And my pit was a living pit and was sustained and kept living by a substance called arrogance. Arrogance was everywhere and was life sustained for the pit and life imprisonment for me. Now, what kept arrogance stable and secure to the pit was pride. Pride was a great catalyst and seemed to be an abundant supply. 
There was a time that the pit was attractive to others, but in time it became a hideous environment and was avoided like leprosy. My pit became, un it com became comfortable and safe and yet lonely and addictive. Self-centeredness blocked out true wisdom and life. The walls of my pit were covered in drug paraphernalia, pornography, and other hideous attractions. But what was not obvious was the frail carcass and near corpse laying at the bottom of that pit. Now one day, a religious man walked by and looked down that pit and saw the despicable scene and hopeless specimen of a human being. He mentioned as he passed by the pit of despair, hey, you down there, if you can get yourself on out of there, out of that filthy pit, I can tell you how to stay out. And on he went leaving the desperate soul to wallow in despair and drown in his hopelessness. Now, not long after that, a rich man passed on by and noticed the stench of the pit before him and looked down. He barely saw the pitiful carcass at the bottom of the hideous pit. Speaking critically, he said, Hey, had you listened to me, you would not be down there and wiped his feet clean of any obscenity that may have attached to him and walked on his way. Now down the way was a speck of light that seemed to be growing stronger and brighter all around. And soon over that pit stood a strong stature of hope. It was Jesus. It was as though he could hear the cry in the heart of that lifeless carcass at the bottom of that hopeless pit. He then climbed down the walls of that filthy, hideous pit, drew near the stinking carcass, picked it up, and carried it, placed it on solid ground. And he's never left my stop. That's my Jesus. He saved my life. He saved our marriage. Today, we have six beautiful children, five that are married, and we're expecting our 19th, 18 and 19th grandchild in the next little while. And the biggest miracle all is that every one of them were in church every Sunday morning. Now, how does that happen? How does that happen, you know? And, you know, last night I spoke in Regina, and I get out, there's two phone calls on the, on my phone. It's from two of our boys. Dad, how'd it go? We were praying for you. Dad, hope it all went well. You know, these are boys that are 36 and 30 years old, and, you know, um, it's, it's just incredible what God can do. We were devastated when a contractor refused to pay his bill and we faced bankruptcy. We were devastated when Diane got the news. It was cancer. We were devastated when they said our baby would not live. We were devastated when we got the call that a semi-loader with propane ran the yield sign and hit our son and one person was dead. We were devastated when we found out that our girls were caught up in a cult. We were devastated when the board of directors told us we are low on funds. We are devastated when our son and daughter wanted nothing to do with us. We are devastated when our 6,000 square foot lodge was totally destroyed in a heavy storm. And plans had to change. Questions like, why God? Why have you done wrong? What we have done? What have we done wrong? But God has a plan. Could we get through this like so many other ministries before us have? A time of testing. <clears throat> Were we up to the job or not? And back on our knees we went. 
live an abundant life today. Um, Diane and I today are so excited what we get to do and travel and share about what God's done in our life. And honestly, it's, it's nothing short of a miracle. The Holy Spirit is 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 strength for me, and I I, I love what the Holy Spirit can do in our lives. And and I tell anybody if you uh, if you want to move from black and white to spectacolor, if you want to move to real life, let the Holy Spirit work in your life. Don't be afraid of that. That is that's an area that I wasn't sure, but boy, I'll tell you, God is so good, and His Holy Spirit is sent to us to comfort and give us the strength we need to uh, to get through what we need to get through. And um, while we were first saved, we got to work at a Canadian Sunday School Mission camp. One Hope. Sounds like a broke <laughs> record here. We were at a camp for 10 years. Uh, isn't Doug the director there at your camp? Doug Arpagat? Uh, no, oh, okay. Yeah, we were with One Hope and with Canadian Sunday School Mission for a lot of years. Uh, couldn't believe it. Uh, we went and helped. All I wanted to do was go and clean toilets and fix plumbing. And uh, after a couple of years doing that, they asked if we would direct. Holy crap, brother, you're desperate, you know, <laughs> you know, for help. But we ended up there 10 years, and the camp grew, and they had to add more weeks on to it and everything else. And so I know, you know, it's so great to work with young people. And camp ministry is so powerful. Like, honestly, it is so great. And one day I'm working with these young guys, and, and a lady brings her son to camp, and his name is Brock. And, uh, and she says to me, you know, Brock's a handful. And she says, if he's too much, call me tomorrow. I'll come get him. Oh, heck no. I said, not a problem. We'll be all right. Well, by noon the next day, our son Blaine, who's program director, said, Dad, we can't handle Brock. He's too much. He's 14 years old. He's girl crazy. He's a good-looking kid. And I'm telling you, he's in trouble all the time, 24-7. We couldn't handle it. So I said, bring him to the office. She brings Brock to the office. And he barely gets in the office. And he's going to sit down. And he looks at me and says, Mr. Stephan. Don't send me home. Right to the heart. Like, just straight. He did not stop it. He went straight for my heart. And I said, you know what, Brock? We have no choice. We just can't keep up with you. You're more than we can handle. He said, Mr. Stephan, I'll do anything. Don't send me home. Ah, I thought, anything? <laughs> That's pretty good. You know, for a kid that age, to say, I'll do anything. So I said, Brock, okay, here's the plan. I said, today I'm going to tear apart the mechanical room. Farmers did the mechanical in that place. There's more hose clamps and leaky hoses and stuff there that you can shake a stick at. And nothing worked. So I said, I'm tearing it all out of there. I'm going to build it, rebuild it all brand new. And I said, if you'll work with me and help me, I'll teach you a lot of stuff today, but I'll teach you how you can make it through this one. He said, I'll do it, Mr. Stafford. So that day we worked, and he learned how to use a pipe cutter. He used a measuring tape stuff he'd never put his hands through before. At the end of the day, we turned the water on, and no kidding, it not a leak, and he loved it. He still holds a picture of us in that thing, you know. But he made it through that week. And I said, Brock, you know before any of us when you're getting out of control. So I'm going to ask you to do this for me. I said, take three minutes and breathe and take a break. When you see yourself getting out of control, come talk to me. Go talk to Grandma Diane or go talk to Blaine or Joey or other sons of lifeguard. Talk to him. But if you'll go to any one of us for three minutes and just sit and then go again. And the reason I learned that was when I was 16, I bought that, or when, yeah, 16 or 17. I had that 72 Mustang and I bought it from a place in Saskatoon and the motor was shot. It took three quarts of oil to get me Saskatoon to Young. When I got there, 
the co-op garage where I was working at, the mechanic, Elroy Atterbury, was so mad, he phoned that dealership. But before he phoned the dealership, he said, Harold, when I'm done with this phone call, we're getting a new motor for that car. But you got to promise me you'll help me change it, and I'll teach you something. And he taught me. He got me a new motor, and he taught me how to run that. But about two, three weeks after he put that new motor in, it was a Sunday afternoon, and I'm racing my buddy Randy on the highway. He's got a Dodge Interceptor, an old police car, and we're racing the Mustang against the Interceptor, and Elroy Adler's walking down the sidewalk in young, and he sees me. And my guts just turned up. Oh, I'm in big trouble now. So a few days later, when I went to get gas, he called me into the back, and he said, get back here, I need to talk to you. I thought, oh, no. And I get there, and you know what he says to me? He says, Harold, when you're racing like that, let off on that gas for a bit. Give it a breather and nail it again. And he said, you keep it playing like that, you're going to blow that engine again. So give it a breather. Let it up, give it a breather, and nail her again. But don't keep it going like that. Like, how do you keep that a life lesson, eh? And, and so, anyway... Brock, I told him, take a breather. And it did. He made it through that week. And his mom was so amazing. But the greatest miracle of all was that 14, 15 years later, we're in Saskatoon, and this guy comes up. And uh, we're at Elam Tabernacle, and he comes up, and he gives me a big hug, and it's Brock. And he says, Mr. Stephan, he says, uh, I'm, uh, I'm engaged to be married. I have my own home, and this winter, I get my journey with plumbing papers. Thanks for spending time with me that day. Six hours, guys. Six hours in a guy's life. Today's involved in ministry, and today he's doing fantastic. God told me at that camp that someday we would be a part of a ministry where young people would come and find what their gifts are. Everybody's got a gift. There's not a person in this room that doesn't have a gift. And you either should be sharing it or using it or something for the kingdom of God. Because God needs that. And we need to pass that on. And um, anyway, God said we'd be part of a place. And for 25 years and more, I, I got pictures. I looked at prices for farms and stuff. And there is not a chance we could afford something like that. My wife gave up hope on it. She humored me. Every one of my friends humored me, and they were so sick and tired of hearing of it. But you know what? An old guy once said to me, Harold, if it's true and you believe it, don't stop shitting. One day I'm driving down the road in April, oh, April uh, of 08, and I'm driving down this road, and I had to pick up some supplies for my wife at, from uh, the ranch, and the lady invites me in for coffee. And we're having coffee, and I start telling her about this ranch. I just It's just something that comes out of me all the time, no matter where I am. And she just sat there and listened. And after I was all done talking, she looked at me and she says, I knew you were coming. I said, what do you mean? She says, for 15 years, I've prayed over 80 acres of land. I've got Bible verses laminated and taped all the posts around that 80 acres. And she said, God told me someone was coming to change lives and build the kingdom of God. Now build that ranch. So today, <laughs> so don't give up on your dreams, you guys. If, you, if you've got a dream, don't give up on it. Just keep praying and keep sharing it because honestly, there's somebody out there that's going to help you. And I'm just going to grab my Bible. There's a scripture, there's two scripture verses I wanted to read today, and, and uh, little ones, they're not talking, but I go back to Deuteronomy. And uh, I think about when Moses was Moses stepped out of the picture, and he was done. And then he went to Deuteronomy, and now Joshua, the son of Nun, <coughs> he couldn't do it on his own. Moses left him with a lot of wisdom and everything, but look at here. 
was filled with the Spirit. And we need to let the Spirit of God in and work in our lives because He will give us a wisdom and direction. And then I go to uh, right here in uh, Luke, Luke 5, 18. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed and that they were trying to bring him in and set him down in the front of him, but not finding a way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof and they let him down through the tiles with his stretcher in the middle of the crowd. They were determined to get his friend, their friend, in front of Jesus because they knew there was healing there and Jesus could heal them. We are the people carrying that stretcher, you guys. We have got to carry that stretcher. There's Right now we have 10 million young people in this country that are desperate for mentors. When I was a kid and working in that co-op garage, there was four of us kids to every adult. We were the boomers. There was a lot of kids around. Today, there's one kid for four adults. I was being mentored. Today, none of them are getting hardly mentored. We're just not doing our job. We're not passing on. We say to these young people, they seem so useless, useless and lazy and everything else, but they're not being mentored. Nobody. And it's our responsibility. They're not supposed to come to us. We're supposed to say, hey, I see something in you. Do you mind if I help you and show you some of that? And so I really encourage you guys to, to seek to mentor and make a difference in a life. And at the ranch, we bring young guys in there and girls too. We have a girl from Briarcrest coming possibly at the end of this month. She's supposed to be heading our way on the 23rd. Uh, we picked up a guy from Team Challenge of last Monday. He's there now. And we put through a lot of young men and we've helped a lot of girls too. Today we've got girls that run equipment that never could knew about equipment before. Uh, we've got young guys that have come to us and they have no idea. No skills or nothing. I think of um, uh, Jason uh, from Toronto. He came to us. Three times he tried Teen Challenge, and uh, he was ready to give up. He was dying on the streets of Toronto, and Teen Challenge didn't even want him anymore. And then he heard about the ranch, and he was ready to give up on Teen Challenge in Allen already, and he heard about the ranch, and we said, but you can't come till you graduate Teen Challenge. He graduated Teen Challenge, and today he's, uh, he's a third-year plumber, married, and has his own home, and doing fantastic. But we have to know that we got to be a part of that plan. And there's, I can tell you story after story about young men and women that have come to the ranch. It's the only Christ-centered life skills and trades facility to learn a uh, skill in, in Canada. There's no other place like it in Canada. Um, our biggest uh, hindrance is Jesus. You know, but they don't like Jesus on there. The, the government won't help us. They've uh, told us, you take that part of it out, then it won't be so controversial and we'll help you out. But uh, we're not going to do that because Diane and I know where we'd be without Jesus. We would be we've done. And so anyway, the ranch uh, is a great place. Uh, we just, uh, that's where God's put our heart and he's prepared the place for us. Uh, it was a flat piece of land with nothing on it when we got there. Today there's a beautiful lodge on it, a big shop, a beautiful church and a stage for doing concerts in the summer. We have about 18 head of livestock and uh, pigs and chickens and he's a farm out there. Yeah. But it's a great place and it's peaceful. And when you drive onto that land, you can tell that. We take vehicles and we restore vehicles or sell them or crush them or whatever. But we do a lot of stuff to help teach life skills. And, and uh, you know, maybe you can do that. Some people say, well, I'm not into that. Well, that's okay. But there's an area you can help. You can come and you can share your time and your strengths. You can come to the ranch for a week or so and teach what you've got. We have girls there, women that come and teach sewing. 
guys, you know, I got pictures of them sewing and working on sewing machines. It sounds crazy. But I tell you, without a mom in our home, I knew how to sew by the time I was 12 years old. And it doesn't hurt to know how to sew and mend something and fix something. And it's the interaction between the elder and the older person and the younger person is just huge. And so we got people there that teach everything from carpentry, electrical, plumbing, concrete work, or just about anything you can think of. They run equipment and they learn, they learn how to milk a cow. And uh, it, it's just a phenomenal place. And, and we were grateful where God brought us from a pit that was horrible. We were going nowhere. When we got married, somebody said once, that's not going to last long. And, and they were right. Without Jesus, it was not going to last long at all. Uh, in it all, my mom come to know the Lord, and my dad come to know the Lord through it, and uh, and it's exciting to see what happened in our families. But we just thank God for it. I, I thank God for this opportunity tonight. I'm just going to ask my wife if I missed anything. Oh yes, <laughs> thank you, sir. About 25 years after I was busted for drug trafficking, I'm at Arlington Beach. For a conference and the Canadian Sunday School Mission had a board meeting there. And were you ever at Arlington Beach? Yeah. And they have the conferences there and, and so they have meetings there a lot. And anyway, um, after the board was done, they asked me to come in and share my story with the board. And so I did. And lo and behold, after I got done, uh, an older guy in the crowd says to me, Hey, uh, Harold, what year was that that you were in court? And I said, Oh, it's. Uh, uh, February 1976, and uh, he said, where was that? I said, Walker, Saskatchewan. He said, Harold, I was that judge. I was Judge Paul Conroy, and I was that judge. And how crazy cool is that? But, you know, and God plays that all around, you know. And one day, I'm in the camp, working in the camp, and one of our counselors, uh, Raven, she's talking to her dad, and her dad says, he wants to talk to me, so I didn't know him. And she says, my dad, Rick, wants to talk to you. And so they're talking, and uh, and he says, Harold, this is Rick Dienover, and I know you don't know me or remember me, but back when your house was raided and you were charged with trafficking, I was one of the police officers that was on that team. And he says that he's quit the force now and you're in the construction company because it was just too hard for him. And he's become a believer since then. So God is working. God's there. And we have to set the example. We have to be the benchmark for people to see the righteousness of Christ in us. When they see that, you know, it all changes. It's a whole new ball game. And I look at our kids, and I look at where they've come to, and all our grandkids, and, and at Christmas time, and being in church with them on Sundays. And Diane and I look at all this, and we think, my gosh, God, how good, how good, and how much better can it get? You know, we have we can show anybody our financial part, portfolio. It's just not there. But I'll tell you, we have a family that's second to none, and they care for us, they love us, and uh, and, and we do have a great life in Jesus Christ. And uh, I just want to know if anybody needs prayer for anything tonight. Diane and I love to pray for people, and, and if you want prayer for anything, we would love you to come on up. And, and honestly, the power of prayer is so incredible, and we know what God can do when two or three or more gather together, and also when people grab that stretcher. And you know what? If you got somebody there with you right now that you know needs prayer, get you a few of these and put them on that stretcher. I was going to bring a stretcher with me today. <laughs> Honestly, but the eight-foot poles on each side wouldn't fit in my wife's Pacific. And I don't know how I was going to get that in that car, but I did figure out how I could make it work for next time. I could make it folding. I did, uh, it'll work. But uh, it's so neat, that uh, object lesson of that stretcher. And that's what we are. We need to carry the lost. To the foot of Jesus. Because once they get there, um, I've had people in, in bike clubs say to me, hey, I'm not scared of you, but it's that Jesus guy around that I'm scared of. 
They don't want to get too close to him because you don't have to be close to, too close to Jesus before that light of Christ. And on the cross, there was three of them, eh? Two criminals. And one guy mocked Jesus terribly. And the other one said, shut up. We deserve what we're getting. We deserve everything that's happened. He deserves nothing that he's getting. And then he turns to Jesus, would you forgive me? Would you remember me today when you come in your kingdom? And what did Jesus say? Today, you will be with me in heaven. And you know what? We don't have to be in church. We don't have to just right now. If you decide that you want to be in heaven someday, it's pretty straightforward. Just repent, walk away, and go to Jesus. Thank you. God bless you all.